might sound like an odd question to ask in church, but what do you make of religion? Religion. On the one hand, it's a very normal part of being human, isn't it? To investigate the spiritual side of life, to have answers to the big questions. On the other hand, there are a lot of strange religions out there. I wonder if you've heard of a religion called Santeria. Santeria has millions of followers from all walks of life, doctors, lawyers, politicians, thieves. You might say they're the same thing, Scott. <laughs> um, but according to the official website, it's a religion of trance, mystery, possession, blood and passion. If you want to know more, go to the ceremonies, burn the candles and dance to the drums. The ancient gods will recognise their own. Ooh. Another unusual religion you might have heard of is Rastafarianism, which emerged from Jamaica, but it's tightly connected to returning to the African continent, to Ethiopia in particular. It's distinctively Rastafarian to wear your hair in dreadlocks, and Rastafarians emphasise the smoking of marijuana, which they consider to be a holy herb. Try that with the police. The herb is the new key to understanding the self, the universe and God. It is the vehicle to cosmic consciousness, apparently. Now, they might be two of the more unusual religions in the world, but when you think about it, most of the world is religious in one form or another. Even atheism has a religious ring to it from a certain angle. It's got a dogma of its own and some fairly dogmatic disciples too. I think it requires a fair degree of faith, although I'm sure atheists would beg to differ with me. They start with very honest designs, not wanting to believe anything that can't be proved, whether that's by scientific evidence or philosophical reasoning. And because they find no evidence for God, scientific or philosophical, they don't believe in God, which sounds reasonable, except that it assumes that the only evidence available is scientific or philosophical. And I just think that requires a bit of faith, doesn't it, chaps? And it further assumes that because you haven't found God from the portion of knowledge that's available to you, in other words, the stuff you know, that he cannot exist in the vast expanse of knowledge that you haven't unpacked, in other words, the stuff you don't know. And really, that does require quite a degree of faith, don't you reckon? But back to religions as we commonly think of them. Most religions, including Santeria, Rastafarianism, are about what you need to do to get to God or be right with him. And if you're into Santeria, that involves sacrificing chickens and dancing to the drums. If you're a Rasta, that means getting dread, smoking dope and returning to Ethiopia. If you lived in the days of Jesus, however, that meant keeping Jewish rituals and traditions. Because in the days of Jesus, the Jews and especially the Pharisees had morphed God's beautiful scriptures, you know, the ones that Talia was telling us about a few moments ago, into a tome of man-made rules and traditions what they thought you had to do to please God. And I just think that Rastafarianism sounds like way more fun. But for the next three weeks, we'll see Jesus renovate religion uh, in various ways. Firstly today at a wedding in Cana, then next week at the temple, and then in the following week with one of Israel's religious teachers called Nicodemus. But today... As we turn water into wine, or at least Jesus does, we discover that he brings something much better than Santeria, Rastafarianism, Jewish traditions, and indeed all human religion. So first up, and there's only two points today, straight from the text in John 2, Jesus performs an amazing sign that points to something coming. It's an amazing sign that points beyond itself. He turns water into wine, indeed lots of it. 
It's early in his ministry. He's only just appointed his first disciples like we saw last week, having been so keenly anticipated through the ministry of John the Baptist. And he's invited to a wedding near his home in a place called Cana. Now, even that's interesting, right? Because Jesus is not a party pooper. He is a party goer. He's at a wedding because he doesn't think that a kind of monastic singleness is a higher, more spiritual existence, even though he was single. So he's for marriage, he's for singleness, he's for parties as well, and he's there with his disciples, those five chaps that we met last week, all local boys. And he's also there with his mum, who probably had some responsibility for the catering, you know, like the, the, um, the little party pies and the mini pizzas. And she comes to him with quite a dilemma. Verse 3, when they have no more wine, Jesus' mum says to him, they have no more wine. Now, I don't know if your mum was like my mum and she was uh, like world-class at stating the most obvious thing as though she were the only one to notice. So I remember coming back from the beach burnt to a crisp. It was so bad, I, I couldn't even walk without hurting. And my mum said, gee, you got burnt today. Oh, I'm just I'm so glad you pointed that out, mum. Thank you. Or, uh, you know, on a report card which showed that you got an F for maths. You're in despair. You're thinking, I have no future in this STEM environment. Uh, and your mum says, well, you failed maths. As though it was a complete surprise to you that you hadn't noticed the glaring big F on the card. They have no more wine. Now, in those days, uh, that is a major social faux pas. A shameful embarrassment, especially for the bridegroom who was responsible for supplies at the celebration that would last quite a few days. I mean, it would be like us running out of food at a function we were hosting because we didn't pay the venue enough money. You know, you got all your guests and the last 10 miss out on dinner. Highly embarrassing. And so Mary raises it with Jesus, and we don't know what she really expected him to do about it. We're told this was his first miraculous sign, verse 11. So it's not like he's got this long track record of fixing problems via wondrous means that she's you know, able to draw upon. She had probably just come to rely upon the resourcefulness of Jesus, her eldest son, seeing as her husband Joseph doesn't appear to be around any longer. And when she naturally turns to Jesus, he quite strangely replies in verse 4. Let's read that together. Why do you involve me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now let's just press pause here. Firstly, it's a very odd way to refer to your mother, isn't it? Who's just doing her normal motherly thing. I mean, his response isn't rude in the original language, but it's, it's hardly endearing, and it's certainly abrupt. And I think one of the things you notice throughout the gospel is that whenever Mary appears, at least up until Jesus' death, he almost distances himself from her as his mother. And here it's as if he's saying to her, look, you are my mum, but you've got to view me as Messiah, just like everyone else, not only as a son. But then secondly, what is the deal with my hour has not yet come? In John's gospel, the hour means the hour of his death, the hour of his crucifixion. She asks for help with the catering. He says that he's not ready to die. It's a very odd response. But in a way, what Jesus is saying is that the approach of his death changes everything, even his family relationships, even his relationship with his mum. And so she's worried about the wedding ending in embarrassment. But in, in a kind of a way, he's, he actually says, there's going to be wine. Don't worry about it. It's just not the right time. Not yet. 
You know, in the Old Testament, the prophets spoke to the people of God as they lay in captivity, first in Assyria and then in Babylon, and said, there is a time coming when you will be restored. Guys, you'll be back in your own land. And it's hard to believe it now, but the wine will flow in abundance. There'll be rivers of it. Uh, Let's have a look at Amos chapter 9, for example. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading the grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. What a vivid and great picture of a time in the future when the people will be back in their home and experience the abundance of God. Like it's as if the fruit will outpace the, the work of the workers, they'll grow that fast. New wine will drip from the mountains. You know, a vivid sign of a restored relationship with God and a deliverance that has been hard won by him. And Jesus picks up on that symbolism and effectively says it's on its way. Right? It's, it, 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 this sign, it points to something coming. It's intimately connected with his death. But it's not here, at least not just yet. And Mary kind of gets it because in verse 5 she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. She becomes more like a faith-filled disciple than a naturally badgering mum, presumably just as Jesus wanted. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill up with water these massive stone jars that could hold between 100 and 150 litres each, so giant things, Servants, verse 7, fill them to the brim so there's no chance of Jesus slipping in some wine-flavoured cordial or whatever. And when Jesus told them, they drew some out and gave it to the master of the banquet who doesn't know what's gone on, but boy, he does know that this is no water he's drinking. This is the best wine of the show so far. Because in verse 10, he excitedly says to the bridegroom, the guy who's responsible for buying the drinks, man, most people bring out the good stuff at the beginning and they bring out the cheaper stuff when their guests have had a bit. But you, you've saved the best till now. An extraordinary sign in and of itself. I mean, imagine if you'd seen it with your own eyes or even tasted the wine with your own lips. Points to the abundance of life with God that will come following Jesus' death. And yet there is a further significance to this sign because really what it's saying is that Jesus replaces the stale water of religion with the new wine of Christianity. He replaces the stale water of religion with the new wine of the gospel. I mean, a great miracle in and of itself, but it's full, it's dripping with meaning, if you'll pardon the pun. You know, earlier in the prologue, we read that the law was given through Moses, but now grace and truth has come through Jesus. William Temple wrote this beautifully. He said, the modest water saw its God and blushed. Do you like that? I love that. I'd write that down. (laughs) Jesus replaces stale religion with gospel grace, and in doing so, he saved the best till now. Of course, the real hint that this is the meaning of the miracle is in the big stone water jars, because in verse 6, John deliberately tells us they're the kind the Jews use for ceremonial washing. That is, as part of the Jewish custom and tradition, Jews would wash their hands ceremonially, right? Not so much about hygiene, about ceremony. So in Mark chapter 7, Mark explains this for us. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other, and I think uh, Mark means man-made traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Santarians sacrifice chickens and dance to the drums. Rastas wear dreddies and smoke weed. First century Jews and especially Pharisees observe ceremonial washing rituals, thinking that these rituals, this washing, this religion, made them clean before God and right before God. But of course, washing rituals don't make you clean before God because they don't change your heart if they just remain an external thing. And in fact, Jesus will say to the Jews and the Pharisees of his day, you can do the rituals, fellas, but your hearts are far from God. You know, wash your hands according to the custom, or he might say to us, you can sing the song and pray the prayer. But if your heart is still far from God, then it doesn't make a difference. Not if it doesn't change your heart. You wash the outside of the body, it doesn't cleanse you from the stuff that comes from the inside of you. And it's not a criticism of the Old Testament scripture as much as it is a critique of the way people had really morphed some beautiful spirit-filled commands of God into empty forms and legalistic rituals. In fact, Jesus will even say in Mark chapter 7, you, you nullify the word of God by the traditions that you have handed down. In other words, you go through the motions and the forms and the ritual, but if that's it, then that's all. Right? They neither make you right with God nor deal with the heart of the human problem, which is always the problem of the human heart. And isn't that the problem with all human religion? Things can look rosy on the outside, but what's inside is just is rotting. I mean, no wonder people are suspicious of religion. You see this among priests and ministers who abuse children and bully their staff. I mean, you see it all the time amongst politicians and celebrities I mean, I wonder if part of the attraction of the whole Taylor Swift movement, right, it's a phenomenon, is here you have someone that doesn't appear to be rotten on the inside. Don't know if that will later prove to be false, but it looks good. There are legions of examples from the world of sports, aren't there, of um, people that look like they've got it together and then something happens and you realise, okay, that's what they're really like. Footballers and basketballers, they're just the gifts that keep giving, but it's true of golfers and cricketers and runners and tennis players and we've just become numb and unsurprised by it like if we found out that Roger Federer had been running an international drug syndicate not even that would shock us I don't think and you go where, where does all that come from oh that's right it comes from the inside and I wonder if part of the reason why it doesn't shock us is because us ordinary people aren't that different are we our hearts are deceitful too don't they mock make a mockery of our best intentions and that was the problem with the way the Jewish religious traditions had come to be practiced in Jesus' day. You could follow the external rituals and stay broken. It's the problem with human religion today. They can't make you right before God if they do not deal with the human heart. Now, I can't see any obvious Santoreans in our room, definitely no Rastas. <laughs> You're probably not interested in Jewish ceremonial washing either, but I think everyone has a religion of sorts, their own way of trying to be right with God or just sort of be okay in themselves in which they place supreme faith. So 38% of our neighbours in Northbridge here say they're of no religion. I don't think that means they're hardened atheists, but no religion is the box they tick. And I imagine uh, the majority of those folks would put faith in the hope that they're a good person, however they might define it, right? It might, you might be just the same as you might be one of them, that's okay. 
a good person, hopefully good enough for God. Not perfect, I mean, no one's perfect, but hopefully the good kind of outweighs the bad, right? But North Shore good person religion is not that different to what the Jewish traditions had become because hoping that your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, that doesn't fix your heart either. It, it, it hardens your heart or it makes you depressed in your heart. If you're good at being good, you naturally become proud and you harden your heart towards God and you say, well, I don't need you, God, because I'm frankly good enough on my own. If you decide you're hopeless at being good, you become depressed and think there's no way I can impress him. Either way, no matter what's happening on the outside, it doesn't fix your heart. certainly doesn't deal with your sin. The Bible says when we try to be a good enough person for God without God that our deeds are like filthy rags. And so there stand six stone jars, those large things filled with water for ceremonial cleansing, representing Jewish traditions, but actually all kinds of man-made religion, Santeria, Rasta, North Shore, good person, no religion, religion, the whole thing. And Jesus brings something that is better. He replaces the stale water of religion with the new wine of Christianity. He saves the best until now. Replacing the stale water of all human religion with the abundant wine of his own mercy and grace. He saved the best till last. And really he does bring something that's better. I want to say faith in Christ is better. Because it actually cleanses us from our sins so that we can be right before God. It fixes our hearts. Firstly, it recognises that there is darkness and sin and transgression in there that we cannot overcome by ourselves, by our own willpower or best efforts. Right? It just recognises it. And then it deals with it by forgiving it only because of the sacrifice that Jesus will make on our behalf. And then it unites our hearts with God's heart And then it reorients our hearts, turning our focus and attention off ourselves and towards God and others. Faith in Christ is better because it brings inward transformation. It doesn't just deal with the externals. It renovates our hearts so we're neither arrogant before God because we think we're good enough without him, nor depressed because we think we can never be right with him. He replaces the stale water of religion with the new wine of Christianity The mercy and the grace that he offers is abundant. Friends, I'm saying it is abundant. There is lots of it. It is choice. It is the best thing on offer. And I wonder if people who are suspicious of religion understand this about Jesus. Well, here in John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first sign that points to the abundant life he will bring. But of course, that only comes at the hour and the cost of his death. That death brings a new way of being truly cleansed from our sin and being made right with God. But what difference does this miracle make to us now? What do we do today? I want to say the first way to respond is to stop trying human religion. Uh, You're not trying to please God by dancing to the drums or doing anything with chickens or by smoking the holy herb, but... I wonder if you might have an underlying commitment to the North Shore religion of being a good person, however defined, right? Not being too bad, doing your your bit, just with a bit of Christian stuff thrown into the mix. Basically, you're still hoping that the good outweighs the bad. And if that's what you think will make you right with God, whether it's in the form of your private morality, your community involvement, or even your church service, 
Friend, you are mistaken, if I can say that humbly and respectfully. Nothing other than trusting in the death of his son will do it. Being good without God doesn't cleanse your sin. Hardens your heart. Makes you proud or depressed. And so I'm not saying don't do good. But I'm saying if you do it to twist his arm, to somehow manipulate him into getting something that you want, even if it's just to feel okay about yourself, rather than as a humble expression of gratitude towards him and love towards others, that is not going to work. And I am saying give up on your form of human religion. Jesus has replaced it with something much, much better that changes us from the inside out. And secondly, because Jesus has replaced religion with something much better, his mercy and his grace, forgiveness that flows because his blood flowed on the cross, we actually need to see that it is better with him. Some of us might be persuaded by the truth of Christianity, but we're equally convinced that it means we miss out on life, on the best that life in this part of the world offers. And so we occupy this awkward position with a foot in both worlds and we become both a compromised hedonist and a compromised Christian. We're equally devoted to our own program for life, in whatever form that is, as we are to following Christ. And we know this in our hearts, but it's worth saying it. You can't do both of those things well, can you? Of course, following Jesus does mean that you might forego some of what this life might hold. But we are holding up perfection in the life that is to come. But even now, can you not see that life with Jesus? Free, flowing forgiveness, cleansed hearts, peace with God, hope for the future, purpose in this life is much better than even the best of what this life holds. It's better by far with Jesus. The disciples, this fairly unimpressive mob of local fellows, had seen all this go on in front of their eyes. They'd seen, verse 11, the first of the signs through which Jesus revealed his glory, and they put their faith in him. They believed in him. Have have you ever seen anything like that? Six massive jars filled to the brim with water, turned by Jesus into an abundant supply of new and choice wine, a sign of the age to come, an age ushered in, by the hour of Jesus' death, which was also the hour of his glory. The disciples seeing it, and I reckon they tasted it too, put their faith in him. They believed. Sounds like something you and I should do, to put our faith in him, not just because he can turn water into wine, but because he can take all our human traditions and our religious strivings, the things that we trust in, and replace them with something better because he replaces them with himself with his life and death and resurrection that can fix our hearts, who cleanses us from the inside out so we can live rightly under God, who changes our focus off ourselves and onto others and onto God. In Cana, at a wedding, Jesus renovated religion. He revealed his glory to his disciples and they believed. And friends, so should we. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this miracle and heart of hearts. We wished we had been there and seen it for ourselves. But having just read of it this morning, again, we acknowledge the wonder of it, but also the richness of the meaning, that you can replace all our human traditions and our religious strivings with something that is better by far. Your mercy, your grace, 
your forgiveness that brings us peace with God, hope for the future and purpose in this life. And so we praise you and ask that you would bolster our belief in him. And for his sake we pray. Amen.